Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is not one, but two Conroys. So on my left, we've got Matthias Conroy, who was with us before on the episode of Restoring Catholic Weirdness. Mm -hmm. And joining us for this week's episode is his brother, Ben Conroy. Delighted to be here. So I have three people on the podcast for the first time since the first episode, which is kind of fitting because this is going to be sort of a bookmark of an end of season one of Risking Enchantment. I am going to take a little bit of a summer holiday. But don't worry, Risking Enchantment will be coming back. My plan is to start either the first or second week of September, and I already have plenty of recording lined up for the summer. So recording will be going on throughout the summer, but I was looking at people's schedules and trying to coordinate different times, and the kind of summer nature of this season means that everyone's schedules are all over the place. So it was going to be a bit of a nightmare to get something out every second week. So we're going to take a bit of a break. I'm going to stockpile some really great episodes, and then in September we're going to be starting back again with season two. (laughs) But for this last episode, I thought it would be fitting to just cover off something that's been occupying my life and the life of lives of Matthias lives and of others. <laughs> lives of others, which is the young Pope. So Matthias and Ben are part of my I know this feels very embarrassing to admit. I call it our Catholic Bible study group. And then I joke that the most Catholic thing about it is that we do not study the Bible. (laughs) But in our defense, it did start as a Bible study. And then we started watching more things like Bishop Barron series and lots of other lecture series and stuff like that. One one thing led to another and now watching the young (laughs) book. Pretty much. We then decided to take a serious left turn in our academic leanings (laughs) and do something a bit more pop culture for 10 weeks, which I did not expect. The Young Pope was marketed as a mini-series, so I really wasn't expecting 10 episodes. Mm. But we have just finished watching all 10 episodes of The Young Pope as a group. And so while it's still fresh in our minds, I thought it would be good to get this podcast out and have a bit of a discussion about what it was like watching it, why we thought it was good, whether it's worth watching, and what it kind of says about Catholics in the media. Because it was a really... Big production. It's got, you know, big names in it. Jude Law, Diane Keating. And I believe I read that the budget was 45 million, (laughs) which is pretty big. (laughs) So the young Pope is one of the really, I'd say, few examples of people taking a very big approach to Catholicism. I was just discussing with Ben and Matthias that I'd love to do an episode in the autumn about priests in general in TV at the moment. There seems Mm. to be something of a glut of them. But even still, they're usually sort of parochial stories rather than big budget. Vatican intrigue. Yeah. (laughs) I'm still amazed. The production quality was so good that you did really believe you were in the Vatican, didn't you? That was, yeah. When I read... Just like sort of cinematographically. I don't know what the right correct word is there, but just, yeah, in terms of the actual look of it, I thought that was spectacularly Mm -hmm. pulled off. And when I actually read in some of the reviews that... The limited amount that was actually shot in the Vatican, because the, the Vatican, the Holy See, didn't cooperate with filming at all. <laughs> Shockingly. <laughs> <laughs> Bafflingly. <laughs> uh, and they really, they created a sense of place fantastically well. And, mm. you know, quite often when we finish an episode, you know, 
there'd be something we'd be complaining about. And then someone would say, but that was a beautiful shot, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. Uh, it, it consistently put beautiful things on the screen. Yeah, and I think that's probably the strongest part of The Young Pope is just the imagery and the cinematography and also the soundtrack. Yes. But the plot is a lot vaguer, so I think we'll maybe give a little bit of an intro to the plot. Probably won't go into it that much, but that's not just because of spoilers, it's also because <laughs> the plot is just all over the place and doesn't really follow a lot of mm. like narrative thrust. So it, it's kind of hard to sum up what the Defies the story description is. a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that being said, we will probably talk about plot details later yeah. on. So if for whatever reason you don't want to be spoiled about every about any little thing about the young folk, then probably watch it first. Yeah, definitely. Although well, I would say definitely, maybe don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you don't want that, yeah. yeah. It's not necessarily the kind of show that's going to be ruined by knowing, you know, details about the plot. Definitely. Yeah, and so the very first thing that I would say about it is, is that I think the way that we watched it is probably the best way to watch it, which is to get a group of friends, hopefully ones that kind of know a, a chunk about their Catholic faith mm. or uh, just about the Catholic Church generally. And to to enjoy it as a group, I can't imagine watching this on my own. I think it would I would just get put off too quickly. But the essential premise of the plot is that a young American pope is well, a young American cardinal is elected pope. Obviously, young is kind of relative in this term. He's mm. in his forties, but yes, that would be a very young pope, played by Jude Law, and he is elected on the basis that a lot of the cardinals think he'll be easy to manipulate and helpful for a sort of, I guess, liberal, left-leaning policy within the Vatican. Mm. And then he becomes elected and he is much more, at least the show tries to present him as much more of a kind of traditional, orthodox... Um, Top of his nails. Yeah, dogmatic kind of figure. And he brings with him a nun who helped raise him. He was raised in an orphanage. So mm. his sort of right-hand man slash woman in this case <laughs> is Sister Mary, played by Diane Keating. And he variously comes up against different cardinals. There's the cardinal who was his mentor who really thought that he should be the one who should be elected Pope. He was played by James Cromwell. There's, is it the secretary? Secretary of State, right, yeah, yeah. Boyello. Boyello. <laughs> who is very kind of machinationing his own form of the Vatican and is very put out when Jude Law, who plays the, the Pope, is his father Lenny Bellardo, yeah. and then he becomes Pope Pius the Thirteenth. Yes, yeah. and he's not... He's not inclined to go along with Cardinal Voyello's schemes. No. <laughs> and so it's it's variously about what he does with his papacy mm. and how he sort of leads the church and the, the changes that he makes. And that's kind of the, the premise for the... the broad strokes, yeah. Yeah. So within that sphere, it has what I would consider quite a promising premise. Also, it was very much marketed in a particular way to be very provocative. Mm. It was marketed the young Pope and there's a lot of shots of Jude Law looking very sort of sweaty and handsome or something. Um, <laughs> or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, there were a lot of memes, really, the title sequence where he walks along beside these classic paintings and then winks into the camera roguishly, you know, it's, it's inspired endless memes yeah, and, uh, which I think actually that element of it is something that it does quite well, which is a sort of playfulness, which I mm. actually enjoyed. Yep. But it also hints at a more, it, it does 
It's interesting. So in the first episode, we're treated to a couple of dream sequences back to back. And there's a lot of dream sequences and a lot of things that happen in this series that we're not sure whether they're dream sequences Mm. or not, or they're kind of left a bit ambiguous. But it opens with a dream sequence where we think it's real and Pope Pius XIII is elected and he comes out and he makes a speech and it's all about how the essentially the Catholic Church needs to be embrace all of these things that it has traditionally stood against, uh, such as abortion and contraception and things like that. And the crowd gathered in St. Peter's is aghast. And it's this very tense, uneasy moment. And then we find out it's a dream sequence and it goes into a very different, and at that point we're presented kind of with the more traditional and rigid mm. version of the Pope. Yeah, because when you see when you see Jude Law as the young Pope, you know, a lot of people when the show was first announced thought he was going to be the kind of Pope that's portrayed in the uh, in that dream sequence yeah exactly and and that's what they did with the ads they even suggest and like we said spoiler alert uh, he doesn't, but they suggest that maybe he's sleeping with people in, in the ads. And then I think they did a bit of a, a bait and switch and a sleight of hand where they kind of drew people in with this potentially very scandalous series and then gave them something quite different and still arguably scandalous, but not <laughs> definitely not the show that they kind of draw you in with. Right, exactly, exactly. But it's, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. I've never experienced a show where I've in turns both punched the air in delight and then shouted angrily at how badly that they were getting back to back frequently throughout, so, so often. <laughs> throughout many episodes. Mm. And so I think maybe the thing that we should do is talk about some of the pros and cons. And usually every pro is immediately countered <laughs> with a con. So it'll probably take turns in kind of pros and cons. Right. I don't know if anyone wants to go first. Yeah, I'd say one of the, maybe to start with one of the pros, the Vatican newspaper Observatory Romano didn't talk about the young pope for a good long time after it came out. I think the editor said they wanted us to either sort of canonize it or condemn it, and we just, we just want to stay out of the conversation until it all died down a bit. And they said, you know, there's a, there's a certain thing about this show, which is that it gets that religion is, can be a significant force in people's lives, mm-hmm. right? It, it takes that seriously. It takes the idea that a person's relationship with God might be something that matters to them um, and to the way in which they approach life. And that's actually shockingly rare. Yeah. Mm. If you think about anything, TV, movies, you know, even most modern novels, this massive part of the human experience, whether you're religious or not, is often just completely and left out and unapologetically left out. Mm. Yeah. So, it, so that's something that is not left out of this show. Yeah, and any expression of it is very privatised. Like, it's what I feel and I won't impose it on you. Right, and that, exactly. that happens both in modern culture and then it's reflected in modern art. Yeah. yeah. I think that's totally true. I think that's the thing that appealed to me most when I decided to force this upon the group in our, <laughs> in our Bible study, which is that it takes... Catholicism seriously at least in some respects Mm. that it actually seems intrigued about Catholicism and the Catholic Church as an institution and the one thing I will say about it is is that it doesn't demonize the church and the kind of interesting thing that it does is literally no one in the series is either a saint or a sinner Um, uh, Lenny or Pope Pius XIII is frequently called a saint um but then we're repeatedly shown like things to the contrary not that they're blasphemous or anything but just that he's not this this kind of angelic figure so he's a saint because he can perform miracles 
but he's also a very broken person who feels often very far from God. So mm. there is this kind of tension with it. But absolutely no one is a particularly good or bad guy. Um, no, no, uh, they, no, no. Or rather, they, they have both extremes within them. The shades of grey, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it, it does it similarly with the church, which is, it, it does engage with the fact that the church is dealing with sex abuse scandals or mm. that it's unpopular for particular uh, stances that it holds. But it doesn't actually just say, and all of that is crazy and they're all evil and there's nothing to be esteemed about the church. Right, right, absolutely. So I think that's one of the interesting things is that particularly because I think in some ways we can be comfortable about doing that when it's a single priest, let's say, like I was saying with these kind of parochial parish stories where it's a single person who is trying to do their best and we can sort of forgive them almost in terms of like a modern audience for being a Catholic and right. a Catholic priest. Mm. But when it comes to actually showing the church as an institution and showing that even the whole of the institution is both like damaged and flawed, but also admirable and a force for positive things as well. Mm, the article yeah. Ben was quoting actually, I think, describes it having a docile admiration for the church, which I think is a very good description of the kind of tack it takes with, with regards to the actual church in the Vatican. Yeah. That said, <laughs> here, here comes does this show understand Catholicism at all? <laughs> um, and I would say it, it definitely does understand it at all. It understands it to some extent. And mm -hmm. this was one of the things that just kept coming up when, when we yeah. come to the end of an episode of the show. Some things just don't get Catholicism. So mm -hmm. Some things either, as we've said, just leave it out entirely, treat it as this kind of quaint private matter. You know, you might be a Catholic in the same way as you might like like look at the horoscopes mm -hmm. on, uh, on the weekends when you browse through the paper. Or it paints this completely bizarro, um, just, just a completely out-of-touch picture of, of faith in the church. Mm -hmm. This show kind of does this weird thing where sometimes it seems to really get it. Mm -hmm. It seems to really understand this is kind of the force that such and such a thing will play in the life of a Catholic. This is why Catholics care so much about, you know imagery or, or liturgy this is uh, you know a vision of, of the way the catholics see god and it'll, it'll nail that and then it'll in the very next scene perhaps the next line of dialogue say something baffling <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just no catholic would ever say so mm. so an example of this is in one of the big set pieces of the show where Pope Pius XIII is, is finally addressing the Cardinals after a big build-up. And it's kind of, it's almost like the centerpiece of, of the first half of the show. And he gives this big speech, and it's obviously meant to be a kind of a traditionalist manifesto, you know. We need to become more mysterious, we need to recenter our faith on God, you know. Mm -hmm. Less about people, less about meeting people where they're at, more about going and finding God. And it's a particular kind of vision, obviously supposed to be portrayed as this kind of, uh, this traditionalist vision. And um, with some grandeur and also some, some regrettable aspects from the showrunner's perspective. But then at a certain point, the Pope says, you know, and this is the end of evangelization. <laughs> and, and, and you just go, no! <laughs> no traditionalist, no matter how hard-nosed, would ever call for an end to evangelization. Yeah. And, and if you'd ask any priest about that one line, you say, you know, what a, what a try and say that. No, they wouldn't. Mm. And, and you just kind of wonder how that stuff got passed. Yeah, and I think the really like, frustrating aspect of it is is not just that the main character holds positions that might be contrary to church's teaching or might be deliberately provocative or something like that, but because they have to be presented in a way that it, it, he's meant to be a traditionalist pope, and so you would expect 
people who are more traditional to be rooting for him yep. and applauding it. So then you have this con constant expectation that he's saying something profound. But if you know anything about your faith, you're just sitting there going, but that's not profound at all. <laughs> In fact, that's awful. And even the things that are meant to be evil, even the things that are clearly meant to be this person's a high-bound traditionalist, again, sometimes it's just the wrong things. Yeah. So it'd be like if you were portraying, say, a fascist character. And they said something like, the workers must control the means of production. <laughs> it's like, okay, I see that this show is meant to be coding this as evil and bad and repressed and whatever. But it's coding it as just the wrong kind of thing. It's not even believable as an example of this kind of, of worldview, even if it's meant to be portraying this worldview yeah. as bad. Yeah, that is the most frustrating aspect of watching it because there is a real sincerity in the way that it actually tries to engage with the Catholic faith. Mm. But I was saying to the guys here just before we started, which is that so much of it rings true of the, this kind of approach that we often have in the sort of discourse these days, which is that people who know nothing about the Catholic faith assume that they know everything about the Catholic yeah. faith. So they'll say things like, oh, well, I went to a Catholic school and they said X or <laughs> they did this. And you're like, yes, that doesn't mean that the church is that or says that or that you have it right. And so there is this sense that the director really did a huge amount of work to then not do very basic work. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. That, that could have been solved if they had a single kind of sincere Catholic on their writing yeah. team or on set to go, actually, maybe not that. Um, I think that for me... Call up James Martin, you know. <laughs> He's clearly available. <laughs> but like anyone. And and that's it, because in some ways the, the frustrating bit is the, is the lack of sincerity, because there's so many very fundamental things about the Catholic faith, which it just assumes that nobody holds sincerely. So from a, a traditionalist pope asking a confessor to to break the seal of confession yeah. which just is so egregious that you just kind of have to and he, I think the reason he gives is something like I'm the Pope and it's like it's it's mixing up this like regard for the office of the papacy with just abject heresy yeah. so it's like it's taking these things which at first seem very Catholic but just a Google search, a talking to, you know, any anybody who knows anything about their faith would just know is just blatantly incorrect. And to be clear here, the point is not oh, it's so bad that the Pope, you know, asked someone to break the seal of confessional. If you want to portray a Pope who's going to do something like that, by all means, if that's the story you want to tell, tell that story. It's just the idea that anyone surrounding him, whether the person he's asking or anyone else, would see this as kind of of a piece with his alleged traditionalism. Mm. Yeah. It makes you think they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And it, it makes certain things ring hollow, even as other things really ring true. Yeah, exactly. There is just a sense of it being muddled. I was going to say that one of the things that I... It's, it's frustrating because you say it's the, one of the things you find most interesting, but then it gets left kind of unexplored in any real kind of way, which is that one of the things he does make in his real speech at the start and throughout the series, he's constantly calling for like the end of sort of half-hearted Catholicism. There's another speech where he says, I want fanatics for God. And some of that is actually really quite moving and mm. interesting. And it shows a pushback from a genuine modern occurrence, which is this nominal Catholicism and cultural Catholicism which only barely dips their toe into the faith mm. and so to say that like well maybe we should stop calling that Catholicism is an, a genuine discussion that kind of should be had but he has a quote where he specifically talks about people who doubt and again like Ben already pointed out it's it's so funny because so many of the speeches walk on like a razor line of almost being right and then just being wrong. Mm. Um, and so the idea that because 
and as Matthias said, there's almost this thing where you would expect a sort of very staunch traditionist pope to say that doubting is banned now, which is actually not a thing that happens in the Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic faith. The exploration of reason and doubt is perfectly within the scope that like Catholicism can cater for. Mm. But he says, I have nothing to say to those who have doubts about God. All I can do is remind them of my scorn and their wretchedness. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess in that case, it's probably just using it as a plot device to explore his own themes of doubt and so on, which well, go out throughout the series. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. Because then for the rest of the series, we're kind of led to explore his own doubt. And it's almost really interesting. <laughs> right, absolutely. Right, because that's a great premise, okay? On paper, super traditionalist Pope wins in surprise election. Also, this guy doesn't really believe in God yeah. or has serious doubts. That's an amazing premise. You could do so much with that. Yeah, while also calling for a more rigid and stringent version right, of the faith. Right, right. And so there are a couple of scenes where it's so, so interesting because he's literally performing miracles and then in the next scene saying something like, I don't believe in God. Mm. But the problem with it is not the actual idea or the premise. It's the execution because they can't seem to really settle on a particular motivation. And there is something to be said for people's motivations coming from many places and being a bit muddled. But when they always just seem to fit whatever scene is presented. So at times he is doubtful through great sadness. But he's also doubtful when it benefits him, when it, it allows him to be scornful, when it allows him to not have any kind of strength attached to what he's doing. There's this disregard that he has, but it's also like a source of great pain for him. It's tied to the fact that he's an orphan or his parents abandoned him. But it's, it's too many directions at once. And so you don't ever actually get to... And also, for such an important theme, they don't really come back to it at the end. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's, it's a classic example of doing something narratively, which you should never do, which is explain something more interesting in terms of something less interesting. Mm -hmm. In that, you know, Sorrentino has this, when he's interviewed about the show, the showrunner, the, the writer, the creator, he basically says that one of the things it's about is loneliness. Um, he says, which is loneliness, which is not the solitude of somebody who doesn't have anybody to chat with in the evening, but a more profound, deeper condition and sense of uneasiness, then in the final analysis you are alone. And that's why those who have that knowledge of this solitude ask themselves the question of God. So again, interesting stuff there, but the closer the show ever comes to an answer to sort of exploring this whole, you know, doubt and faith theme is really, well, Lenny was abandoned by his parents and a lot of this stuff is just kind of an expression of his sadness about being an orphan. Yeah. Which Considering the seriousness which the show often approaches God questions and the, the epicness of those questions, to just say it's a kind of a Freudian externalization of, you know, parental abandonment issues is a bit boring. Mm. Yeah, it's um, kind of boring. And the times where they kind of tease at actually more interesting things, like the Secretary of State at one point is speaking to another of the Cardinals and he sort of confides in him that he actually believes that Pius XIII's election was a, a movement of the Holy Spirit and that despite what it may look like, things are possibly turning up. And... We never really get any of that after that point. He kind of just goes back to his machinations and his sort of, you know, his, his wheeling and dealing. And it's like, those themes could have really done with a lot more exploring and they kind of just let them drop. Yeah, and for a show that's so preoccupied with the church as an institution, like Ben was saying, it then swaps it out for the personal. So I think 
for me anyway, the most sort of eye-rolling moment was when he is being set up to be blackmailed. So he's talking to a young woman. And so there are cardinals watching him ready to take photos. And they get onto the topic of why he is, obviously in this context, he is supposedly being led to be in a, an inappropriate relationship with this woman. And he talks to her about why that won't happen and why priests don't have these relationships. But he essentially says something very personal which is also in my opinion kind of lame <laughs> um, just just that it's it's so ingenuine in the way that it approaches catholic faith and catholic teachings which is to say he says priests are celibate because they're cowards and they're afraid to love and it's so rude and unfair to say about priests it's one thing to posit it as his own personal reason but he makes this speech to her in which he says uh, generally of all priests and then within the world of the the story the cardinals who are watching him are so profoundly moved by this supposed truth that they decide not to blackmail him anymore because he must be from God. <laughs> so there's this whole thing where it's presented as if this is a very profound true thing. It feels so deeply uncaring, like as if it just doesn't care about what an actual priest who might sincerely hold the belief that celibacy allows him to interact with both his people and God in a more free way. And I think it's one of these classic examples of it getting the externals but not seeing the inside view. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that there was actually, and I wish I could quote the study exactly, but I think generally priests think other priests are unhappier than they themselves are. So, <laughs> so priests are actually quite happy, but they sometimes assume other priests won't be. And I guess this show is kind of, it's seeing the external things about, you know, celibacy, poverty, and all the things that have to do with the life of a priest, but just completely misunderstood. Like there's another line where he talks about, you know, we can't be fathers, so we ourselves are reminded that we're always sons or something like that. And it's like, no priest would ever say that. It's just kind of faux profound and slightly nonsensical. And um, so it's, again, it's kind of, it's not seeing the inside view and not really understanding the mentality. And, it's, and it's one thing to say, as, as you pointed out, Rachel, that, that this is something, this is a psychological statement about Lenny's own beliefs. Mm -hmm. This is part of the big messed up package that is this fascinating character. But it is, it's absurd when the show kind of immediately validates this position and uses it as a, a sign of this guy's great ultimate understanding. It's an example of something that I think that maybe Sorrentino gets wrong a bit about his own show. Because in another interview he talked about how, you know, Catholics would enjoy this show if they appreciate it like a great painting, right? You, um, you look at a great painting and you're not checking it for orthodoxy. You're just kind of taking it in and being inspired by it and hopefully being kind of, it's hopefully raising your mind to God. And that's totally fine, I agree with that. I think this sort of box-ticking exercise of trying to assess Catholic works of art as though they're, you know, pieces of didactic instruction, that's, that leads to bad art, and mm -hmm. it's a bad way of doing criticism. But sometimes if you don't get the dogma or the doctrine, if you don't get the underlying truth, you also don't get the art, you also don't get the characters. When you're doing a story that's so much about priests, and a story that on some level seems to get that God could be really, really important to people, mm -hmm. God could matter in a way that a lot of other stories don't, once you get that, why can't you make that jump to say, well, well, might a person just want to devote themselves entirely to God? <laughs> you know, might they might they want to be celibate because they want to just entirely focus their lives on that relationship rather than on the other close and intimate relationships involved in, in family? Right. There's no great imaginative leap required there, but it's a leap that Sartino fails to make. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, he trips in the puddle and drowns. <laughs> um, and that's, that shows frustrating mixture, right? Um, you know, for every punch the air moment, there is a, a you know, throw the TV remote moment. Yeah, and I think one of the 
most frustrating parts of this is that the question that is certainly where the start of the story is is one of the most interesting ones that I've ever come across and I would love to see someone really really delve into it and in some ways he gets it very right and it it really ties in with everything we're talking about here which is that Sorrentino in his beautiful cinematography particularly in his costumes in the way that it's filmed really delves into the material and the lavish elements of Catholicism in a way that actually delights in them and doesn't just condemn them as being sort of overblown or self-indulgent. That really gets the sort of beauty of it. He really also gets the really Catholic thing of the paradox, which is that Pope Pius XIII reinstates a lot of these old forms such as he demands the return of the papal tiara and he starts wearing the red shoes again and he's wearing all of these more like brocaded and embellished vestments and things like that mm. but he he also completely retreats from the sphere of media at at exactly the same time. So he refuses to be seen in public. He refuses to have his photo taken. He refuses to have his likeness on any product of the Vatican, whether it's a, he has a big thing about plates and, or, you know, bubble-headed dolls, whatever it is, that he, he has this move towards mystery. And it's interesting that, that it's both a retreat, but also an expansion of the the physicality of it. So there is this beautiful paradox where you're both building up in terms of what the, the things that you use, but you're also hiding them from view at the same time. And it's one of the most interesting things he does because he talks about how you lead people into the Catholic faith. And he makes the argument that you don't do it by giving them everything and explaining yourself a thousand mm. times and by putting yourself completely at the mercy of the media, but rather that you foster something that is some more mysterious and more sacred and more hidden. And that leads to another thing that a positive, real positive about this show, and that that's one of the things that it really gets, right? Yes. Um, it really gets. When we were watching these bits, a lot of people were saying, "Yeah, you know that that there's such a thing as overexposure. The best media strategy is not always to um, level of pure communications. It's not always to make yourself maximally available to go chasing after people saying, "Hey, hey, hey, I've got something to say." Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's better to quietly rest in the knowledge that you have something worthwhile and to hopefully to, to attract people with that, to kind of, to let people be attracted by you rather than by, and by what you believe, by the truths that you hold, rather than kind of desperately trying to lasso them, you know? And in that way, it's very Christ-like. Right. Because Christ just preached and he didn't even necessarily do a lot of preaching in the places that you might expect preaching to happen. Like, I know he is in the temple, but mainly we hear about him in boats and on shorelines and in city in towns. And, right. And he just lets people come to him rather than sort of making a big show and announcing himself when he is coming. It's interesting, I think, that one of the relationships that... Um, Lenny enjoys the most in the show is with the head of Vatican Media Communications, this lady named Sophia, played by Cecile de France. Um, and they very early on established this kind of rapport because she gets it. You know, she sees he has an eye for communications. He knows how to reach people. It's not the way she would reach people, but she sees he's a smart guy, has a plan, and he kind of sees in her a fellow person who understands about human communication. And it's interesting that throughout the whole series, as everyone else is getting frustrated and plotting revenge against Pope Pius XIII, this Sophia character is kind of always delighted to see him. You know? <laughs> and it's sort of an interesting harmony between 
two things that seem very opposed, the sort of the demands of a mass media age mm -hmm. and the silence and mystery that Pope Pius is trying to introduce. And one of the things the show kind of maybe subversively suggests is that maybe the latter is actually quite a good way of handling the former, that the way to respond to a media age is not necessarily by trying to imitate it, but, yeah. um, but you may succeed better by offering a kind of contrast. Which is certainly something that actually does kind of get on the money is what a traditionalist pope might do. That the sort of the mystery of the ancient liturgical rites, the both in East and West, and how someone who is of a traditional mind might actually, you know, take those principles and use them for the age of mass media rather than sort of the, the, the other approaches which have been tried in recent years. And I think in some ways it also really gets on the money how much confusion is caused by over-explaining. And so I think the thing that leaps to mind at the moment is the sort of the airplane interviews from papal visits that always seem to lead to more confusion and more division and more chatter, like just noise. It's not even proper theological discussion. It's just like, well, he said this, or this was taken out of context, or, you know, this isn't what you think it means. And in some ways, yeah, that there's such a volume of content all the time that things might actually be clearer if you explained less. Yes, yeah. The less you talk, the more impactful every time you do it is, yeah. Um, but I also think, again, a really subversive and really interestingly subversive thing that he does is with the the material aspect of it because I think we've been told for so long that it is both ugly and gauche and disrespectful for the Catholic Church to be a church of beautiful objects mm. um, and that's something that we should shrink away from and be uncomfortable with and it's something Matthias and I talked about a good bit in the Restoring Catholic Weirdness episode where we discussed why it's important to set ourselves apart from the world. And just having that conversation about what is due praise and, and what is right, uh, right for the Catholic Church. But I think it's interesting that it gets right that despite what people say, they still want to see those things. Like there's a reason that St. Peter's is full every day. There's a reason that the world wept when Notre Dame was burning. Right. That um, as much as it in principle thinks that these things are bad, it also yearns to have some access to them. And so I thought it was interesting that it was in the article written by Matthew Schmitz in the, was that the Catholic Herald? See, the Catholic Herald of first things. He compares it to Mad Men, which I think is really interesting because mm -hmm. there is that sense of seeing something you're not supposed to see. You're not supposed to see people sitting around smoking and being flippant about things that we would now be very careful about. And there is that ability to say that, like, well, while some of the things might not be right, there is something alluring in it as well. And so the fact that it goes through such lengths, like, even even when he's not in his regalia, uh, Pope Pius XIII is wearing these, like, papal tracksuits. Yeah, the papal tracksuits are great. <laughs> Monogrammed um, with the keys, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and it's a little bit cheeky. I always think that it's at its best when it's a little bit cheeky, like the the opening sequence that we talked about, which is set to along the watchtower and yeah, is, along the watchtower. Like it's deliberately funny and I think one of our favorite scenes and I think most people who watch it will enjoy it if they can, if they can take a little bit of humor in what they're seeing is they have a whole scene where Pope Pius the 13th is put off meeting the cardinals for 
absolutely ages and it's getting ridiculous at this point and but he's waiting for the papal tiara to arrive mm. and so it has what is essentially a girl's shopping mall sequence where he tries on different shoes and different outfits and then eventually settles on the most lavish one set to the tune of I'm sexy and I know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, My LMFAO. <laughs> it's obviously being very tongue-in-cheek but to me I think that that is done quite good-naturedly, actually. It really is, yeah. And that you see that scene out of context and, you know, it could have any valence. It could be that, you know, this is Sorrentino taking the mickey out of, you know, the, the, the elaborate pomp and finery of the Catholic Church or whatever. But when you actually see it in context, it's cheeky, it's poking fun a little bit, but it's like, you know, this, this stuff has power, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, <laughs> he, he, you do know it, you know? <laughs> uh, Pope, when he eventually carried in, you actually are kind of struck by the sort of impressiveness of some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's it's definitely one of those things, when we're listening at prose, definitely one of those things that I think the show does get. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it does... Again, it sort of, like, fumbles at the last moment with actually getting this point across, but it's also reflected in the spirituality that I think it really nails, which is there's a, a priest character who is based in Honduras and he is actually sleeping with the wife of one of the narco drug lords and eventually he's being moved away from there and he's being replaced by another bishop who you see in a scene is giving a much stronger and condemnation and a more orthodox message and this priest who was sleeping around and doing all of those things was the one being very sort of open and tolerant and nice but when he is eventually kidnapped by the drug lord there's a really fascinating quote where the drug lord says to him if you had preached in your church against the narcos and refused to give me communion, I would not have felt disrespected. You would simply be doing your job, then I wouldn't have felt obliged to use violence against you. But that's not what you did. That's what the current bishop is doing, and he is right to do so. In fact, no one would dream of laying a finger on him. You, however, have chosen a different path. And so there's this sense that the world actually wants to see the Catholic Church be the Catholic Church. Mm. And in some ways that's true. I think there is definitely a big push that wants to see a more, what they might term, modern view of the Catholic Church, which is maybe in their view more tolerant or in their view more open. But at the same time, going back to those like aspirations to see the, the beautiful hats and the brocaded shoes and the beautiful settings, that there is also an underlying draw to see the more traditional Catholic church that is more challenging and is more true to itself. Right, absolutely. And those two impulses kind of are somewhat at war with each other within this series, yeah. right? You know, t talking about this again, it's in terms of, you know, what people want or what's most likely to be successful in kind of a mass media age, it's interesting to think about Marshall McLuhan, the theorist of media and communications who who invented a lot of the concepts that we now just take completely for granted in, uh, in media communications. He, he's the one who said the medium is the message. So the idea being that when you're conveying a message through a television screen as opposed to a printed page or a printed page as opposed to a verbal delivery, that 
it's not just a matter of taking the same content and delivering it through different just mediums that don't really alter its nature, but that the very way in which you communicate it is itself a key part of the message. Now, that might seem obvious in the age of Twitter where you're talking about, you know, how social media is degrading our discourse, but this guy was talking about in the 50s and 60s. But what's really interesting about Marshall McLuhan is that he was also a really hardcore Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a re some really interesting takes on some of these moves away from the beauty and the, the ceremony and the, the visual attractiveness. He has this quote from his book, The Medium and the Light, where he says, The need for participation in groups and social forms always requires some code, whether verbalized or in the form of costume and vestment, as a means of involvement in common action. What the young are obviously telling us is this. We want beards. We want massive costumes and vestments for everybody. We do not want of the simple, plain individual stuff. So his point was that at a time in which kind of expressiveness and, you know, crazy outfits and... Uh, you know, television and the power of images was just becoming more and more powerful because of television. It was exactly the wrong time for the church to move away from its own iconic images. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, it may be not something that immediately strikes you, but when you think about it that way, it makes an awful lot of sense. And again, it's something that the young Pope really, really kind of nails for the most part. Yeah. And like I said, I actually think that's the most interesting thing that it does in the series is this question about mystery and how do you cultivate mystery and and like ben said nobody would say let's stop evangelizing <laughs> but i think there is something to be said for saying maybe we need to change what we mean by evangelizing and right. maybe evangelizing means being this beacon of strong catholic performative religion that people can look to and identify and say a million miles off oh that's a priest and that's that's a catholic church right. and that's what that looks like and draw people to it rather than simply just going out to people and trying to meet them where they're at which mm. is something that Pope Pius Thirteenth in the show does not like at all at one point he says I have banned the word compromise <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it's interesting and of course with these things there's always a kind of a great Catholic both and you know mm -hmm. probably yeah. different people need different things yeah. it's not a matter of some you know binary opposition between meeting people where they're at and sort of being more mysterious or presenting a more sort of evangelization of attraction rather than evangelization of pursuit you, you need both yeah but it's, it's hard to look at the modern world today in the church and say that it's hard to say that we couldn't do it more this uh, more mysterious more uh, attracting approach and the other thing i think it does actually really get right we were talking about how lenny is so focused on the fact that he's abandoned by his parents which as Ben pointed out, dominates the story in a way that is almost baffling, that it's, for us, at least as Catholic viewers, the least interesting part of his psychological <laughs> makeup, and yet it is so present in the story in a way that just is, seems overblown, even in a kind of dramatic setting. But he, what he does get right is that, so his parents are very, very explicitly uh, said to be hippies, and they are shown to have sort of neglected their duties and run off and they I guess represent that 60s movement that baby boomer movement that mm. that the reaction to which for a lot of young modern Catholics is a return to the more strict and the more dogmatic and traditional form of Catholicism and so I think it was quite an observant thing for it to catch up on which is that as much as let's say young people at large are being much more sort of progressive within the Catholic sphere, even if their kind of political leanings are more progressive, often their religious expression will be a lot more traditional. So I think for someone who's actually not 
coming necessarily from a Catholic point of view. I thought that was quite sharp of Sorrentino to pick up on. Right, right. And there's this great line where he talks about orphans. And this is kind of, this is hinting at the idea that he might try and explain something less interesting in terms of something more interesting, <laughs> um, as opposed to what mostly happens, which is the reverse, where he says... You know, an old cardinal says to him, you surprised me, Holy Father, you were young, yet you have such old ideas. And then he says, you're wrong about that, I'm an orphan, and orphans are never young. But the majority of churchgoers, says the cardinal, are not orphans. Says who? You really think the only orphans are those without a mother and father? And that that sense of orphanedness, that sense of, you know, being abandoned by someone, or, or being abandoned by what matters, or being kind of a, a byproduct, whether you're a child of divorce, or whether you're... You know, someone who's addicted to pornography and nobody cares. Or just or... the lack of priests. Or that, you know, in our particular culture, if you're looking for a spiritual father, they can be literally hard to find. Right. And in, in that way be in some way orphaned by the Catholic Church by just not having enough resources to cater for a, the number of people that need them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think picking up on the, the feeling of being an orphaned generation is very, very perceptive. And then we have the final speech. <laughs> yeah, the, I have to say the final episode is almost like an episode from another show. The whole show throughout is a very, I, I think I said many times that I feel like I'm watching a fever dream because <laughs> there are so many parts that almost make sense but then don't make sense and then actually go into a dream sequence and then bits that you are sure must be a dream sequence but actually aren't that you kind of get very disorientated. But the final episode is as disorientating but in a very different way in that it seems to just completely change gears and go for quite a saccharine and very unearned sentimental end. Right. <laughs> um, which is largely centred around the potential canonization of this child saint who, again, because it's an unfortunate position to be in. It reminds me a lot of whenever they make a movie about someone who becomes a famous musician, which means that they have to write music for the movie that, as a viewer, you have to find catchy enough to believe that that person would be a famous musician, mm. which must be a really tricky thing to do. And in a similar way, especially for someone who's not clearly either, like, I don't want to say, maybe he did know a lot about the, the Catholic theology and was just disregarding it. But the, the way that it's modelled definitely feels like it's coming from someone who just didn't know or didn't kind of get what he was talking about. But because there are all these very quote unquote profound speeches and then as a viewer you're watching them going, but they're not profound at all, in the same way that you might be listening to a presumably famous pop song in a movie going, That's a terrible song. <laughs> I find but, it mystifying that <laughs> so there's this child saint who kind of gets developed as 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 Rachel was saying, gets developed in the last few episodes called Blessed Juana. But I'm wondering what Pope beatified her because she just does not seem like a saint at all. Like there's kind of these moments where, you know, one of the cardinals is sort of telling it, telling her calls to the Pope. He drops these quotes from her, which just no one would ever actually say he was a saint. Like it's so like it just does not ring true whatsoever. And that kind of leads they, to this they, epic sort of fail of a speech in the last you know, episode. They, they might say it if they were an Instagram inspirational quote post. Right, right. So <laughs> exactly. at the end where Pope Pius is, is reading a lot of these quotes or from, from Blessed Juana and a lot of them are put in the form of questions. You know, like, are we joyful or are we sorrowful? Are we rulers or are we servants? 
and he just starts listing out all these dichotomies. And I, I'm kind of, like, I'm kind of thinking like, are we country or are we western? Or like, <laughs> are we human or are we dancer? Like, 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 I, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeing the profundity here, Sarantino. You know, what does asking all these questions actually mean? And Ben and Rachel. <laughs> Ben and Rachel can confirm that as he gave all the responses about what God is not, because that's kind of how the speech comes to its conclusion, he tells all these things that God is not, which are primarily things that God actually is, in fact. I think I suffixed almost every single one of them by just saying, no, 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 that's not right either. God does not comfort us, you know, God yeah. does not soothe us. He does not listen. And he does not speak to us. That's just kind of like, but, but, don't forget, folks, what he does do is he smiles. He smiles. God smiles. Who can forget that? That's like, yeah, um, I mean. <laughs> that's pretty much the end of the series. And you're sitting there going, and like, this is a character who, presumably that's meant to be a character development. So he goes from being very sort of like, rigid and unaffable he's he's quite distant in fact in the first episode he talks about how he doesn't want to be too familiar with the staff of the vatican because familiar relationships are unclear and professional relationships yeah, formal. are our formal relationships are are the ones that he should be having yeah, and so actually more importantly in his first speech i think he storms off saying I don't know if you deserve me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he ends in the final episode by saying, in heaven I will be able to embrace each of you in turn, which could work as a sort of character arc if that had actually been the character arc, but instead it's more kind of muddled and... and, and yeah, and, and, and very accelerated towards the end as well. Thoroughly permeated by heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly formulated by heresy. Matthias Conroy's review of the young poem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And you know, and even still there's good stuff there. There's good mm -hmm. little grace notes. Some of his, his evolution does seem believable. And some of it just seems whack. Yeah, it just seems all over the place, <laughs> right. which is is a bit frustrating. Ultimately, I mean, like I said, it's hard for me to say that I would actually recommend the series. I certainly would strongly suggest if you are going to watch it, like I said, it's hard watch it with people because I think if I were watching it on my own I would find it a lot less fun there is at least something gratifying in being outraged together at something mm. yeah and it's just it's very it's, it's a good it's a good funny show to watch with people as well it is yeah. actually very funny in places mm. no it's, it's it is devastatingly yeah. funny you know this, this he gets a Pope gets a gift of this kangaroo, and it's not yeah. really clear what the relevance of the kangaroo is to the plot, but he exchanges these meaningful glances with the kangaroo, and <laughs> something dramatic will happen, and the kangaroo just hop through the background. Or, and um, occasionally you are actually rooting for Lenny, and I actually think it is more of a strength than it is a weakness, the fact that he is at turns both the villain and the hero. He is very cold and harsh on people, but then at other times he's quite caring but also sees the church as something worth working towards and not just to sacrifice for his own personal indulgences and we have to we have to talk about the italian prime minister well, that, was was <laughs> that was exactly what i was going to say there is an incredible scene where he puts the italian prime minister in his place and it is one of the unequivocal moments where you're just like punching the air mm. and whooping and i was we were constantly kind of on on tender hooks being like when is he going to drop the bomb of you know absolute heterodoxy but it actually he kind of he stays true it's the one sort of gleaming gleaming uh, light at the end of the tunnel of actually like pure doctrine and he's got this kind of it's this battle between him and the Italian Prime Minister, who's this kind of Emmanuel Macron type figure of a sort of a young, modernizing liberal Prime Minister who's very smart, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't make this guy uh, a, a cutout, a cardboard cutout. And I can imagine a lot of viewers 
of this show probably took his side in this battle, mm, right? Yeah. But you have this incredible kind of battle of wits between the Pope and the Prime Minister, where the Prime Minister is talking about how, you know, visits to the Vatican have gone down since uh, since the new Pope has arrived, and people are actually losing touch with the, with the Church, and I have this huge mandate, and then the Pope springing back with just this incredible scenario where he talks about the ways in which he could destroy the Prime Minister's majority if he really wanted to, and you believe him, you know? Mm, yeah. He actually managed to make it really, really credible. And there's this incredible back and forth where they're talking about their, their philosophies, their worldviews, who really has more power, who's, who has the upper hand, who's smarter. Mm-hmm. And it's this really cleverly written, tightly done battle of wits, which is just at the high point of the series for me. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are definitely high points, but there are also very definitely mm-hmm. low points. There was, I think, one of the, the quotes that we enjoyed. I think all of us, when we decided to do this episode, went and Googled every review of the young <laughs> Pope ever just to see what other people were saying. Um, it's from the New York Times review, and it says, uh, When the young Pope is bad, it's epically so, laughable, with histronics and moustache twirling and bombastic set pieces. It's weakest the closer it sticks to the narrative of church intrigue which I actually don't necessarily agree yeah. with, but, but then he goes on to say, when it's good, well, it's still often pretty bad. <laughs> but it's also gorgeous and appealingly weird. Mm. And I think actually the, the weirdness of it and the lavishness of it are its two real strengths. And the, the review goes on to say, it's Tarantino composes shots as if painting religious art and the young Pope looks awesome in both the vernacular and the spiritual senses. So yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. Mm. But I think the other thing that we can maybe touch on a little bit is just its place in culture like how did this this series get made because also we're genuinely not sure what the audience for this show was right it was like a sort of prime time show with a lot of money behind it and big stars but was also niche enough in its kind of theological wrangling that i can't imagine many completely secular or loosely religious people would find particularly interesting in some ways us as sort of committed Catholics might be the best audience because we're probably the best position to understand it, but we're also the best position to see all of its flaws and all of the ways that it does not work. I was thinking that, yeah, because there's something like you almost would have no one to root for if you didn't at least to some degree agree with some of Lenny's sort of, you know, proposed reforms or, or, or returns to tradition. So I think that there's, as you say, there's certain things which we as Catholics are going to you know, punch the air more at the, the triumphant moments, but also kind of, you know, we're going to be, we're going to see more of the light through the window and see more of the dirt that is there for on that window and sort of the mistakes that it makes. I wonder, could more secular viewers um, or more liberal viewers, which is absolutely not necessarily the same thing, empathize with Voyello? Because, Perhaps. you know, let's look at his arc. Maybe there's something there of this apparent, just corrupt bureaucrat is ultimately still cares about the church and he kind of wants to move it in a liberal direction, but there's clearly like love there, there's clearly real concern. And his kind of battle with Lenny slash being somewhat won over by him could be a kind of an entry point there for people who who are not kind of dialogue Orthodox Catholics. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with you for the first half of the series. But the second half of the series seems to put Voyello mainly within a sort of conflict where he seems to... It's not explicit, but at least it is implied that he's beginning to develop feelings for Sister Mary. Right, yeah. And reciprocated feelings for Sister Mary. So... It's, yeah, except that it almost just doesn't go there. Like, it's not that that couldn't be an interesting part of a story that people might root for. But in terms of 
rooting for the church. If the if the question is this is a sort of a battle for the church, yes. it kind of drops the Fizzles, question yeah. <laughs> of Voyello almost like halfway through. Right. So yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know whether that's just because of like, I'm going to say in some ways poor storytelling or is it deliberate? I'm not really sure. We did find ourselves sort of questioning the motives the whole way through and questioning whether that was deliberate or whether that was just misinformed. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it can be a sign of a great work of art when you, you don't know exactly what's going on or you don't know exactly what's driving characters. So mm-hmm. in Brideshead Revisited, the character of Sebastian is, is so beloved in part because he's kind of mysterious. Yep. What is driving his angst? What's driving him to carry a teddy bear around all the time? There's loads of different theories. People are sure their theory is right. It feels kind of like a real person. Yeah. Sometimes the show seemed like it was getting that kind of ambiguity, but often it just felt like there was no real underlying motivation, that whatever problem of the week was driving a person's character in a certain direction, in a sort of a plot device-like way, mm-hmm. and that it didn't always feel like there was really a plan. Yeah. Which leads to a hell of a roller coaster ride, but at the end, just that you're left scratching your head and kind of going, was there much there there? Particularly when you consider it is a mini series. Like, I often find that happens when you sort of have dramatic creep with series that go on for. 10 seasons rather than 10 episodes but Mm. when you have such a confined space to do it you do kind of expect as a viewer that they are able to have at least a clear narrative arc in that 10 episodes but yeah I'm glad we watched it and I think in some ways it prompted the most interesting discussions we've had as a a kind of theological group because I guess in some ways when you're just watching something that is very well informed all you have to do is agree. <laughs> um, whereas when you're watching something that's a little more slapdash and a little more all over the place, then at the end of it, you have to sit there and go, well, why didn't I agree with that? And what is the answer to that? And, you know, and even having debates within the group of like, well, I actually liked what he said there. And no, I thought that that was very wrong. Or, you know, that there was a, a sense of like actually hashing stuff out, which w- was actually beneficial as a kind of Catholic viewer. And I do feel like Sorrentino would probably be pleased with that. Yeah. I think if he yeah. knew that this group of Catholic nerds ended up having like big discussions about the nature of our faith because of his weird show, he'd be like, Good. <laughs> <laughs> we know that there's, we're going to say a season two, although I think it's more like a spin-off show. It's going to be called The New Pope. It's very confusing as to what the premise of that show is going to be. So we'll have to come back to it, I think, when it finally gets released. It, you know, one thing's for sure, it's not going to get any less weird. Joining <laughs> the cast for season two is none other than Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so, I, knew, um, I knew John Malkovich was joining. I didn't know Marilyn Manson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we have some returning cast, so there's got to be some threads that have, you know, maybe we've picked up again. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. But I also think it was encouraging to see something in the kind of general culture that did at least make a very genuine go at looking at the Catholic Church and presenting it and presenting it in an interesting and nuanced way, even when it was a slightly muddled way at Mm. the same time. Yeah. Mad as a box of frogs, but I'm glad I watched it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. And so, like I said, hopefully later in the year, we'll maybe kind of come back to this topic and look at more examples of Catholicism in the media. The one that sort of springs to my mind at the moment, because it's being talked about a lot, but I have not seen, is Fleabag, written and directed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and uh, has... Like, I only know the character as the way that it's referred to on Twitter as the sexy priest. Mm. So I can't say that that has necessarily endeared the series to me, but it might actually be worth 
taking a look at just to see kind of like I said I think it's interesting considering in some ways the young pope was presented as the sexy pope (laughs) that this idea of Catholicism being a bit alluring in a in a transgressive way a bit like what I said about the madman element to it though I'm pretty sure they also did not do their research (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, what was it that you you put the fiddle back on backwards put the cross on the front yeah Any glance at any chart of a chasuble that's designed like that would show you put the cross on the back. Anyway. So, Matthias was not on set for continuity. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. And a wedding in a garden. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so hopefully that was an interesting discussion on a very niche and maybe slightly out of date. I don't know. When, when did it come out? Was it 2017? 2017. 2017. Yeah. We're not too bad, but mm. um, a discussion on, on The Young Pope. I know it was definitely one of those ones that was quite controversial when it came out and justifiably so i would say it is certainly a controversial show yeah it's, it's it's like what you said at the start it's like when you're thinking do you recommend this show it's quite it's quite hard to come up with an answer you know i'd love to talk to someone about it i'd love if someone had watched the show and i could talk to them about it but if they said i have not watched the show should i i don't quite know what to say <laughs> i think it would depend on a lot of factors one of them definitely being can you spare 10 hours <laughs> yeah Definitely. Huh? Yeah. I, I still couldn't get over that it was actually ten episodes. I was really expecting six, but mm. we managed to get through that extra four. Mm. But yeah, so, I don't know, I guess maybe check out The Young Pope. If you yeah, you know, or definitely maybe check out The Young Pope. May, maybe just catch the highlights on YouTube. <laughs> Some of the speeches are well worth looking at at least. Yeah. Certainly, certainly watch. If you're not going to watch the show, watch the Prime Minister scene, because that is quality, quality television. Definitely. Absolutely. And I guess that is it for this summer. All I have left in terms of the bulk of the show is to ask the two guys next to me, what are you enjoying at the moment? I am enjoying the very final season of Emmy Award-winning TV show Breaking Bad, starring the critically acclaimed actor Brian Cranston, Aaron Paul, and Giancarlo Esposito. Um, is, is, <laughs> is this 2016? Yeah, yeah, I just missed out on it when it came out. I thought it was like, oh, is this going to be too dark? And it's actually this excellently well-constructed kind of almost classical tragedy. And it really is as good as they say. You know, the character writing is brilliant. It's consistently focused and trying to tell the story it's trying to tell. And it's a surprisingly moral show over a show that depicts so much immorality. That's very cool. Matthias? Speaking of dark shows from the past, myself and Ben and a couple of the members of our family have been recently re-watching the hit anime TV show Attack on Titan, which is just, it's really spectacular. Again, like, similar to Breaking Bad, it touches on some very fascinating themes while also, you know, having um, sort of tones of darkness and, and light and fascinating characters. So it's been really a joy to, to re-watch that. We're re-watching it in, uh, in preparation for the final season, which is just coming out at the moment. So that's really fantastic. And I've been really loving this beautiful weather we've been having at the moment as well. Just like chilling and finally being done with exams has been really nice. Yeah, I, I really feel for all of my friends who are doing exams at the moment. Mm. Um, it's not quite as hot as it was last year, but I'm quite pleased about that. <laughs> and I have an excellent segue from Attack on Titan, which is that my thing that I'm enjoying at the moment was also an anime film. It's called Your Name. And it's one of the few very inventive love stories that I've seen in a while. Very charming and actually, like I said, inventive. It's not a story that I've seen before, even though it's in some ways a very traditional, uh, you know, boy meets girl and they fall in love kind of structure. But it's, I don't really know how much to say about it because the the plot of it unfolds in such an unexpected way. But I guess I'll just say that the way that they meet is that their bodies switch 
when they go to sleep sometimes and so they wake up in each other's bodies and have to learn to navigate each other's lives. It takes a premise that, you know, could, could just easily be just used for sort of absurd comedy and get some absurd comedy out of it, but also, mm -hmm. like, somehow tells this really touching, meaningful, great story. You know, it's not just... I'm not just saying this because I'm a weeb, okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, believe it, you know, you go, okay, uh, anime and a boy and a girl wake up in each other's bodies, this sounds dodgy as hell. No, no it's this really sweet story. Yeah. Um, with some really, you know, beautiful shots, great music, and a just fantastic atmosphere. Yeah, it's another one with a really great soundtrack. So, mm. yeah, that's your name. I need to get on that. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so that actually brings us to a close. Like I said, I am lined up to record some new, what I think are going to be some really great episodes, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's actually a little bit sad for me to be taking a break. I really love doing this podcast, so I really hope you'll join me back in September. And I've had some lovely reviews recently and like I keep saying like everyone who listens is just it's such a joy for me so I'll be praying for you all during the summer and always and I guess you know as, as always leave, leave reviews if you want and tweet and reach out and tell people about the podcast I really appreciate it and I'll be talking to you very soon I'm sure goodbye bye bye bye, -bye. god bless This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.